Oh, hello, uh, friends in Mafra. Um, good to be back with you, albeit by the medium of video. And again, we say thanks to Wes Jackson, one of our bright young stars at uh, Warrigal Presbyterian Church who puts the videos together for us uh, whenever we need them. So we're very grateful to Wes. But uh, we're continuing our series on the book of Ephesians. Uh, we're up to chapter 4, start, uh, we'll, we'll start at verse 17, so before we begin, let's pray. Uh, loving Heavenly Father, again we come to your word and we pray that you would uh, cause us to come reverently and humbly and we pray that you would act in our hearts by your Holy Spirit to cause us to be obedient to these things. Uh, we thank you again for your saving grace to us in the Lord Jesus and we pray that as we consider these words of your servant Paul, that you would help us to... Um, to, to recommit ourselves to living lives that are worthy of uh, the calling to which we've been called. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So have your Bibles open, please, but let's uh, read together uh, Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verses 17 to 24. I've called my talk today, New Mind, New Heart and New Wardrobe. So Ephesians 4, 17 to 24. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, I've probably told you this before, but I enjoy football, uh, AFL, and I'm enjoying it particularly this year because Melbourne has won more times this year than they would normally have done in about three years put together. But uh, one of the, the things that makes football an intriguing game, or lots of sports, is uh, the transfer. So when a player comes to your team from another team, and uh, sometimes these, these people cross uh, from one team to another and they bring with them great hopes and expectations, they've build a reputation elsewhere and you're hoping that they'll become a really good player for your team too. And so there's that question mark about them. Will they be any good? But then when they play against their old club for the first time, you wonder, have they sufficiently dispensed with former loyalties? Will the fact that they've put on a new jumper erase their previous loyalty to their old jumper? Because the jumper is a symbol. It's a symbol of belonging to a club. It's something that all the other uh, team members wear together. They make a great show of jumper presentations, it's a, a rite of passage, it's a ritual that clubs go through uh, to bond the players together. And of course you'll hear occasionally the old timers talking about a fellow who will bleed for the jumper. You know, so the jumper is a symbol of belonging, it's a symbol of loyalty. So when they play their old team, we wonder, will they bleed for our jumper this time? Have they changed? Who, where's their loyalty now? Well, there's a bit of that going on in this passage here because clothing imagery is used. Later on in the passage we've just read, we'll find that Paul tells us to take off one set of garments and to put on a new set of garments, and it indicates a complete change. Now this section of Ephesians that we, uh, we've been looking at, 
uh, we started last week. This is the second part of the book of, of Ephesians. So uh, Paul wrote the letter uh, to churches in the, the region of Asia Minor and uh, back in the old days of the Roman Empire. And he's laid out to them the, the wonderful facts of the gospel in the first three chapters. And then he calls on them to live a new life in chapters four to six, to, to live a life, as he says in chapter four, verse one, that's worthy of the calling. So you can say that the, uh, the second part of this book is the moral implications of the new life in Christ. Now that you've become a Christian, what must you do? How should you live? So the first few verses from 17 to 19 concern that old life. He's looking back to the old way of life, what we might call the dark and futile walk of the Gentiles. In verse 17, he says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. So we, we can't go on living in the old way of life anymore. Um, Paul uses his authority here to make a command. Now he's speaking as a commissioned apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And with all of that means, he, he is saying to them, you must do this. He's saying, now this I say, and I testify in the Lord. So it comes to them from the apostle, but with the authority behind that of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now remember, we've been speaking about this before, but the, uh, the great division that the Jews saw in, uh, in humanity was between them and everyone else. So there was Jews and there was Gentiles. There was the, the Jewish insiders, people who belonged to God by his ancient covenant commitments. And then there was everybody else that they had to remain separate from. It was the great ethnic division. Um, but Paul's called the people he's writing to in Ephesus, he's called them you Gentiles at the beginning of chapter 3. But now he says, you mustn't live like you. You mustn't live like Gentiles. Aren't they Gentiles still? And the answer to that is kind of, but not really. You see, the thing is, they've become part of God's new humanity, in which, as the book of Galatians points out, all those old divisions, those old dividing walls of separation have been brought down. Uh, God is creating a new kind of person, a person remade through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you were to trace back some of the indications of this new life that we see in, uh, in the book of Ephesus, Ephesians, in chapter 1, verse 1, right at the beginning, he calls them saints. They're people who have been made holy through the Lord Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 4, they've been chosen before the foundation of the world so that they would live holy and blameless lives. They've been raised and seated with Christ in the heavenly places, according to chapter 2, verse 6. They've been saved by grace through faith, in chapter 2, verse 8. And because of that, they've become members of one new man in chapter 2, verse 15. So God is creating a new kind of human, a new humanity. And so they now need to live in a manner of life that conforms to the character of this new man. That's Jesus himself. So Jesus becomes the great model, but not just as an example, as we'll see, but, but by his indwelling of us with his spirit, he equips us to live the way that we will live for all eternity in him. So God's created them in Christ for good works. We see that in chapter 2, verse 10. And they're to walk in these good works. And so the, the idea of the walk, the way of life, is something that Paul calls his people to. So chapter 4, verse 1, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And so chapter 4, verse 17 spells out in more detail 
what that looks like. The first three verses of chapter four uh, are the, the, the command there. And then he gives some instructions for life uh, in the gathered church community. Now this is still addressed to the church. So the, the implications is a corporate, but now he, he's talking to, to people in real life situations about how they need to live in churches and even in their households. So the call to holiness and blameless living is a call that Paul makes to people that have been living lives that are anything but holy and blameless. And he's doing so using words that are reminiscent of how God addressed his old covenant people, uh, the nation of Israel. So back in the book of Leviticus in chapter 19, there's a long section which has become called the holiness code. Uh, it begins with Yahweh, the sovereign God and covenant God of, of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and all their descendants. Yahweh says to Israel, be holy as I am holy. Yahweh is holy through and through. Um, in Isaiah chapter 6, we, we find holy, 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 three times holy. It's the only threefold description of something in the Bible. Um, we're never told that God is love, 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 but we are told that he's holy, holy, holy. Holy is almost a synonym for what God is. Uh, he's pure through and through. He's, he's so pure that he's other. He's, he's, he's not like we are. And yet we're called to be like him. We're called to live lives of holiness as well. And so in Leviticus chapter 20, continuing this theme of holiness, the nation of Israel was told in verse 23, you shall not walk in the customs of the nations that I'm driving out before you, for they did all these things and therefore I detested them. You shall be holy to me, for I the Lord am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. So Paul's saying that to the people in Ephesus. You have to be separated from your old way of life, from the things that were characteristic of what Gentiles think is normal, because you now belong to a new master, not yourself, but to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. God has separated us out from our old way of life because we are now his. Well, how do the Gentiles walk? Well, Paul characterises it there, as, as we see uh, in the second part of verse 17. They walk in the futility of their minds. So their sinful behaviour starts with their thinking. Now, what does it mean that their minds are futile? Well, it means that they're their thoughts are without value, they're, they're pointless, uh, they're purposeless, they're, they're transitory, they have no substance, they don't last. That's their thinking about stuff that's here today and gone tomorrow. Now that word futility there, when the Old Testament was eventually translated into Greek, it becomes a very helpful guide to how we can understand Old Testament words in the light of the New Testament. And so the famous book of Ecclesiastes, which has this code word, vanity, vanity, or emptiness, emptiness, or whatever, it's the very same word in the Old Testament that is used here for futility. And so Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 14 says, I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. The futility of Gentile thinking is as sensible as making a career of chasing the wind and trying to put it in your pockets. Pointless, vain, futile. Sinful thinking starts in the mind with stuff that just doesn't work. And so, verse 18, Paul, characterising this old Gentile way of life, says they're darkened in their understanding. So again, it's the life of the mind. It's the thought patterns and their thoughts are dark and darkening. 
Now darkness hinders your movement. It's not safe to walk in the dark. We need light to, to make our way safely. Um, I don't know if I've told you this story. I've only got five stories and I tell them repeatedly, but uh, uh, I have told it to someone not long ago, but I remember an occasion uh, of walking in the dark that was not particularly risky, but nonetheless, it was a bit unsettling. I started my teaching career out in, uh, in Nil at Nil High School and I lived for a while on a farm with two young fellas who'd taken over the family farm while their parents went away. And uh, across the farm track from their house where I lived, was uh, the house that their grandparents lived in. Now, they were lovely people and I used to go over and talk to them every now and again. And so I went over one night and it was still light, but by the time we'd finished our discussion, it was it was dark, very dark, and they'd forgot to turn the outside light on. And the, the, the house that I'd left didn't have the outside light on either. And it was, a, it was a dark night. It was a dark night so dark that you could barely see your hand in front of your eyes. Um, so I knew that if I made my way uh, on a bit of an angle from the front porch, uh, veering to the right. Uh, in about 10 metres I would get to the gate that went through the arch with the roses growing over the top of it and then if I w went straight ahead and then turned a little to the left and then veered leftwards I would get across the lawn and find the steps that led to the front door. And so I made my way very slowly step by step uh, barely lifting my feet because I didn't want to trip and, uh, and I kept walking and I kept walking and I kept walking and I thought, gee, this is taking longer than I thought it would until I banged into something. And I realised I'd hit the tank stand. And I was about 50 metres to the right of where I thought I ought to be. And uh, I was a long way out of track and it was because I was walking without reference to anything. I was walking in the dark and I wasn't hurt, uh, but I, I, think, I think to find my way back, I literally crawled so I didn't bump into anything else. I did get to bed that night, but walking in the dark is not a good idea, um, even in places that you think you're familiar with. But the Gentiles are walking, walking in a darkness of understanding. They're, they're in danger because their moral outlook is in the dark. It's a, to, to walk in darkness is also something that, that induces anxiety. And so very often at night, our fears are aroused because we can't see what it is that's making that noise. I heard someone on a camp I went to years ago, he said, I'm not scared of the dark. It's, what in it, it's what's in it that worries me. Um, so have you ever heard the old Scottish prayer? It's where we get our, our saying, things that go bump in the night. Evidently, there was a time in Scotland where faithful mothers prayed with their children before they went to bed from ghoulies and ghosties and four-leggedy four beasties and things that go bump in the night. Good Lord, deliver us. Darkness is associated with fear and anxiety, with misdirection, and the Gentiles are walking in the darkness of their understanding. And as a result of that, verse 18, they're alienated from the life of God. Uh, alienated means to be in a position where they're unreconciled to God. So that's the old way of life, where they're out of whack with God. My grandparents uh, in Brisbane had next door neighbours and uh, I'd go and visit them too when I went and had holidays with, uh, with the family up there. They were always engaging conversationalists of an interesting kind. And uh, the old man there, and let's call him Jack because that was his real name, uh, old Jack used to talk about being out of speaks with someone. And so then his wife, I never did find out her name, it's just the missus, I suppose. Um, 
while I was there, and I've got no idea why they brought me into this, but they started telling me about hostility within their family. And so the lady of the house told me that she'd been out of speaks with her sister for 20 years. And she said, she showed me a, a gift. Well, no, she didn't show me the gift. She showed me a collection of China booties that she had on the wall and then told me that her sister had sent her a gift. Can you edit this bit, Wes? Just, uh... So the lady of the house was describing how she'd been out of speaks with her sister for 20 years. And she said that there came a day, and it was the previous Christmas, where she received a gift from her. And she said, I sent it back unopened. And she was proud of that. She was alienated from her sister. She was in a state of not being reconciled. Whatever the rift had been, she was determined to keep it. That's like the Gentiles, alienated from the life of God. And that's because of the ignorance that's in them. Now, ignorance here means a, a culpable lack of knowledge. They're actually proud of their ignorance. They don't want to know God. They, they're pretty happy just going along. You'll hear people these days say, I'm an agnostic. Well, the word agnostic is a very close relation of the word here that is translated into English as ignorant. Uh, T.H. Huxley, the, uh, the scientist, he was the inventor, so he claimed, of the English word agnostic. And he, uh, he invented it and first used it in a book called Science and Christian Tradition from 1889, where he, um, he said, because there were certain things that you just can't know, God hasn't sufficiently revealed himself. He said, therefore, I am agnostic. I am unknowing about that. Now, it doesn't sound so clever and grown up when you put it into the Latin, because the Latin version of that same word is ignorantia, from where we get our word ignoramus. I'll leave you to be the judge of that. just doesn't sound so clever. Perhaps next time you talk to someone who describes himself as an agnostic, you could remind them, that's a Greek word. Do you want to know how it sounds in Latin? And gently and respectfully point out that it doesn't sound quite so clever. But this ignorance that the Gentiles experience from their darkened understanding, their alienation from the life of God, this ignorance uh, is, is a stubborn refusal. It's just a rejection of God. It's a deliberate saying no to God. And as a result of that, they become hard in their heart. And verse 19 says, not only are they hard in their heart, they're, they're hardening in their heart. They're, they're callous. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So their hearts are hard and getting harder. They're, they're becoming inured uh, to sin, so they're just not even bothered by the implications of what they're doing. Uh, they're dead to feeling. Now, that's the thing about sin. The more you indulge it, the easier it gets, the less trouble it is to your conscience. Now, these people don't have a conscience inf um, informed by the life of God, by the word of God, uh, but their lives are marked by this hardening commitment to life that God regards as impure. And remember that God is holy, which is the opposite of impurity. And so it turns out that they've given themselves over now, that's a strong word. It's the same word that's used when Judas betrayed Jesus or when Pilate handed Jesus over. So they've given themselves over almost as though they've become slaves or captives to the things that they practice. And they've given themselves over to sensuality. It's debauchery. It's a, a commitment to unconstrained indulgence uh, of, of sensual pleasures without any thought to whether it's doing them or anyone else any good. Um, 
sensuality is harmful indulgence of that sort of thing without any sense of shame. Now, that sounds very much like the world that we live in. We live in a world that prides itself on its commitment to sensual pleasure. In fact, so much of our world is, is based on that. So much of the money-making enterprise of our world is, is, is aimed at getting people to part with their money for the purpose of sensual pleasure. I think we could probably say that Australia, perhaps Western nations in general, are, are pleasure-seeking nations. It seems to be the chief good that, see, uh, that people desire. They've given themselves over also not just to sensuality, but to greedy impurity. Um, they've got an insatiable appetite, because that's what greediness is, for what is corrupt, for what's spoiled, for what's no longer as good as it ought to be. Everything's a gift of God, but there's some things that people spoil. Now this goes with the idea of sensuality and, and, uh, and giving yourself over to, to seeking pleasure. Um, in Australia, according to a recent survey from 2019, one in four people, that's 25% of the Australian population aged 14 and over, admit to having exceeded what is a sensible amount of alcoholic consumption at least monthly. 25% of Australians binge drink at least monthly. In other words, they indulge the use of alcohol in a way that the health authorities say is unsafe. Uh, a study of substance abuse in Australia that was published in uh, 2005 uh, showed that the total cost to the Australian community when you put together all of the things like lost work hours, uh, um, injury, illness, death, all of the things that go with, uh, with, with abuse of substances, when you factor all of those things together, the cost to the Australian community every year of our addiction to substances and our reliance on substances was $55 billion. Australia's addiction to pleasure and sensuality is costing us, costing us big time, $55 billion. And probably it's even more now because those figures are about 15 years old. Uh, the next time somebody complains about ambulance waiting times or lack of hospital beds, perhaps we could point out that a lot of ambulance calls and hospital beds are taken up by people who are in, involving themselves in their own self-destruction. Now, this, this commitment to sensuality, um, I read um, a piece some years ago where famous writers were asked to talk about the writers that inspired them. And so a Melbourne writer, Marie Hardy, had this to say in, in talking about her favourite authors uh, and the appeal that they held for her. She said, drunk men, that's my passion. Hemingway, Fanti, Bukowski. She said, men drink themselves to death. I mean, it's not an admirable way of life necessarily, but it certainly puts that poisonous, beautiful, dark edge to their writing. Poisonous, beautiful, dark edge. She's celebrating the darkness. And that's another feature of the world in which we live. This ignorant, darkened way of, of life which, which proceeds from a, a darkened understanding and gives itself over to sensuality and greedy, uh, to, to an, uh, just a, a, a constant seeking of, of impure things. It's willful and culpable indulgence in a life which is in opposition to God. Now here's a, a challenge, here's a challenge. Paul's saying we've got to leave that life behind. 
That's what he's saying. He's saying, leave the old Gentile way of living behind. And I think it's safe to say that that Gentile way of living is, is widely practiced in Australia, widely admired, even celebrated. In fact, it's the stuff that forms the content of most of our, or a good deal of our entertainment. So here's a question I'd like to pose. If our world celebrates and hands itself over to darkness, to sensuality, to indulgence and immorality, how content should we be to be entertained and invite into our living rooms through TV and internet and Netflix and whatever else, how content we should we be to be entertained by things which are characteristic of that destructive way of life of the Gentiles, which is actually under God's judgment? Should these things be shaping how we view the kind of content that we consume? I want to put it out there. Anyway, that's not the end of the matter. Paul is looking at the old life and saying it's something we need to leave behind, but then he moves on to an assessment of the new life. And he says that we need to be renewed inside and out. Verse 20, he says, But that, the old way, is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus. So Christ is the content of the teaching which Paul has passed on. You've learned Christ. Um, he's the subject of what Paul and all the other apostles used to preach and teach. And so he's the one that the believers in, in Ephesus and everywhere, Mafra, we need to learn Christ and we need to take him on, receive him, receive him as a house receives a guest, but he becomes a permanent resident. You see, Christ is a living person. He's not just a concept. He's not just someone we know about. We know Christ. We've learned Christ. To receive Christ, to, to learn Christ, means to come under his rule as our King, our Lord, our Master. And we do so because we love him, because of all that he's done for us in paying for us on the cross. And so to come to Jesus and to accept his rule in our life is not slavery. It's freedom. It's life. It's light. It means turning away from the darkness and walking in a way which is pure, which is good, which resonates with our, ourselves as we understand that this is the way that we were really made to live. So walking or living under his kingly authority is not burdensome. It's life enhancing. It's good for us. But this learning Christ leads to three actions that we see in verse 22. We've got to put off our old self, which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. So that's like the footy player who comes to a new club and he's transferred his allegiance and so he puts on a new jumper to show that he belongs now to Melbourne and not to Fremantle. We've got to be renewed, the second point in verse 23, in the spirit of your minds. So this is being transformed and this is an inner transformation. It's a transformation which we can't affect ourselves. It has to be done for us. So we need to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. This is a bit like what Paul talks about in, in, in Romans chapter 12, where, where um, he, he talks about living a, a new life where we've been transformed by the renewal of our mind. And then having been renewed in the spirit of our minds, the third action that we need to to take on as a result of being of learning Christ is in verse 24. We need to put on the new self, 
created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now that's a present tense verb. We need to put on and keep putting on. So this is a daily commitment. Every day we're going to dress ourselves with Jesus. We learn Jesus. It means we come under his rule. We dress with Jesus. We find that our life is so caught up with Jesus. It's like putting him on. Now in the Old Testament, there's various clothing imagery that's been used. In Isaiah, we read of being clothed with strength. In the Psalms, we read of being clothed with righteousness. Psalm 93 talks about God being clothed with majesty. A person can be clothed with honour. They can be clothed with salvation. Paul takes that up and says that the gospel requires that we be clothed with Christ. We've taken off the jumper of the old club, the club that was going not just to the bottom of the ladder, but to the pit of hell. And we put on the uniform of that army of people, that family of saints that's been made fit to live in heaven. So chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, talk about how we need to reorient ourselves with the Spirit's help for the sake of all that Jesus has done for us. We need to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. We need to live in a way which is an appropriate response to for God's forgiving grace. We've been saved from a dark, pointless, dead way of life. We need to see it for what it is and, and to make a complete break with it. Do you know that very famous proverb from Proverbs 26, like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. That's how we need to look at our old life. It's something that needs to be left behind. It's yucky to watch a dog go back to its vomit. People have nothing to do with the sins of your former life. Leave them where they are. Don't go back to them. They were under judgment. They were, they're still taking people to hell. Have nothing to do with them. Press on now with a renewed mind to live in the light of Christ. We've got to live in a way which is an appropriate response to all that God has done for us. Now, some years ago when I was in teacher training, I spent some time in the Solomon Islands uh, doing some teaching up there. The Solomon Islands being that chain of islands to, uh, to the east of Papua New Guinea. And uh, while I was there, I met a young man who had left the school that I was about to go and teach at. And he was in the capital city, Honiara, being trained in telecommunications. And he wasn't very long from going to London to increase his training in telecommunications. Uh, he's actually gone on, I've discovered, since I haven't had any contact with him for many years, but I've discovered by the internet that he's now the director of the Solomon Islands Telecommunications Company, which is quite something. But um, he came from a small and fairly poor village, and yet he was educated at this Christian boarding school, not a, not a Christian boarding school of the kind that we have here. It was a barefoot kind of a school, no windows, no glass or anything like that. It was pretty basic, but they were educated well. But his parents weren't wealthy enough to be able to pay for him to go there. His fees were paid by a man from Brisbane. And not long after I was there, my friend loyally told me he was going to meet for the first time in his life the man that had paid his school fees. The man that had opened up a whole new world of possibilities from a boy from a little village who'd never in his life worn a pair of shoes until I got to meet him at the age of 20. How do you think he would have reacted on his first meeting with the man who'd made this new life possible? How do you think he would have reacted to him? Would he have been flippant in his greeting? Would he have respected him? Would he have been somewhat reverent towards him? I suspect he would have been. 
Is there some little indication in there, given that we owe everything we have to God through the Lord Jesus Christ? When Paul says to us, walk in a manner worthy of your calling, think about all that Jesus has done for you, all that your calling to him has opened up for you. Think of the hope that's now living in your heart that even the worst that life can throw at you will be forgotten when we share eternity with him in the new heavens and the new earth. Is that hope something that would drive you to walk in a manner worthy of his calling? With the Holy Spirit's help as daily we put on Christ having left behind the jumper of our old allegiance. We're in a new club now and we need to bleed for it. Do you know the hymn, My Hope is Built on Nothing Less by Edward Moat? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. But listen to how he finishes his hymn. When he shall come with trumpet sound, O oh, may I then in him be found, clothed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Put on Christ, keep putting on Christ, because that's the only way that we'll be safe to meet him on judgment day, when we meet him before his throne, only in his righteousness, the righteousness that he won for us when he shed his blood and died for us. Um, walk in a manner worthy of your calling in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, these are great and wonderful truths, so we ask that you would help us by your Holy Spirit to take hold of them. We know that we contribute nothing to our salvation. We, we're sinners saved by grace, and yet we've been saved for a life of, of good works, which you've prepared in advance for us to do. So um, help us to find those good works today and tomorrow, but please help us by your Holy Spirit to... to to, to look on our old manner of life as you do and, and to resist it and to reject it and to, to leave it behind as we daily put on the Lord Jesus. Thank you that we've learned him. We ask now that you would help us to press on in hope uh, of all that he's done and, and won for us and help us to live lives that are worthy of his calling. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks everybody. Uh, God bless you and I'll see you again soon.